This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The richest person on the planet, Elon Musk, is on the verge of owning Twitter. Another rich ultra-wealthy billionaire, Mark Zuckerberg, owns Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. Billionaires are also behind YouTube. On the surface, this may seem like benign information. But what if I told you that this is dangerous and harmful to you and to free speech? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome to the show, Peter. Elon Musk acquiring Twitter really got the world talking, didn't it? With some expressing excitement and others worry. Where do you stand? To me, it doesn't really matter all that much. I think people are making a mountain out of a molehill mostly with this. You know, first of all, we don't even know if the deal will will go through mm-hmm. uh, as far as I know as of today. But regardless, let's just assume that uh, Musk's offer is accepted. Um, uh, I think a lot of people are, are believing that uh, Musk is going to eliminate the very basic sorts of, of of speech controls that uh, Twitter had implemented, the kinds of things where, uh, whereby Donald Trump was kicked off of, of Twitter. Uh, and if so, you know, I guess good. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem to be that big of a deal for me. I think there's a lot of, of exaggerated hopes about what it means that Musk is buying Twitter. Uh, until I see some significant evidence to back up the, the most inflated hopes, uh, it just seems naive to me to, to think that this is going to be a, a watershed moment. Is it problematic that such a tool, such as Twitter, is in the hands of just one man, especially a billionaire like Elon Musk? Right now, basically, ownership is just going from the hands of the investors in Twitter, which mostly are, you know, the, the people who own the largest shares are also extremely wealthy into the hands of another extremely wealthy person. This is not at all new in in the history of, of modern mass media. Uh, you had, uh, I guess he was a journalist, A.J. Leiblin had this great line where he said, you know, the, the Constitution guarantees freedom of the press to all who own one. And right. it's a, you know, a little bit cheeky, but he, he's pointing out a very key fact that, yes, you might have the most wonderful legal guarantees for the freedom of the institution that we know as the press or the media. But those wonderful guarantees only really apply to the people who own the media companies. They're free to do whatever they like with their media companies. If they want to make them uh, as propagandistic as the most dystopian government, they're free to do so. If they want to make them a perfect uh, sort of, of environment for free speech, they're also free to do that. But I think the, the, the history of the, of the modern mass media shows that entrusting media companies to a bunch of very wealthy individuals is not a good idea. Um, so we can get into more of what you know, I, I think would be ideal later, but that, I'm just trying to explain why I don't find this to be terribly important to look at. Because really, when you break it down, it's just going from the hands of some rich people into the hands of another rich person. Right. And so what you're saying is it's it's not a big deal, not because 
you know, wealthy people owning these things are not a big deal. It's because wealthy people have been owning these things, ultra-wealthy and, and billionaires and, and whatnot, and now it's just going from the hands of one billionaire to another billionaire, and hence it's not that big of a deal. So let's get into that a little bit, because it's not just... Elon Musk, right? Um, Mark Zuckerberg, he's another billionaire. He owns Facebook, which also means he owns Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, the richest guy on the planet. I mean, it's between him and Elon Musk. Jeff Bezos owns Washington Post, one of the most prominent sort of um, news agencies in the world. Um, the fifth and sixth richest people are behind Google and so on and so forth. What does all of this mean for freedom of speech, yeah, that's that's the, the the question of interest here. Uh, so you can have many different types of media system, right? Uh, and in the United States, and then exported from the United States to many parts of the world, uh, there was this commercial media system or commercialized media system. So in the 1920s, there was this new medium, radio, and the uh, who is who dominated the radio spectrum in the 1920s? It was university stations, church stations, uh, community organization stations, and they used radio as essentially a, a form of education. Uh, also, you know, playing music and whatnot, culture, education, etc. Uh, in the later 1920s, uh, AT&T figured out a way to use its nationwide network of telephone transmission lines to uh, spend a lot of money producing very you know, well-produced, slick radio programs, and then could transmit them across the country to radio stations around the country, and then sell advertising in the, the breaks of these programs. So th this was the birth of the commercial uh, model for modern electronic mass media uh, forms. And then that was later adopted for television. Um, I don't know if, if, and if any of your listeners were on the internet in the, the early days. Right. Well, when I was a teenager, when I was on the internet, I was thinking, oh my God, this is incredible. I'm talking with somebody from Brazil and somebody from right. Europe. This is going to break down national boundaries. We're going to have better, you know, understanding around the world. You know, the internet is going to be this, this wonderful uh, source of, of hope for a better future because people will be better informed. Well, it was very uh, uh, sobering to, to, while I was doing my research, read people in the 1920s say exactly the same thing about radio. They were right. so optimistic about radio. Radio is going to eliminate ignorance. It's going to destroy ignorance. Everyone is, is going to be well-educated because all of these radio stations are going to be devoted to educating people. Well, as we know, that's not how the medium evolved because it became commercialized. And then the, the purpose is no longer to educate people or, you know, inform the citizenry so that they can effectively govern themselves, but rather it just became yet another medium to sell more products. And then the, the, the actual content became simply a means of attracting ears that you could then sell to advertisers. And much the same thing sadly happened to the internet. Um, I think nonetheless, the, the, the media systems that we have today are not as bad at least in the U.S. context, which I know well, as in the past, but that's not really saying very much. So when you get to the actual question, question of free speech, we should be thinking outside of the, the currently dominant media models and think what is required by a democracy? 
what is required for a polity to be able to govern itself? Well, the most obvious uh, requirement is that the populace be informed. And what does that mean? It doesn't just mean, you know, what I believe uh, is what everyone knows and, and, and learns about. I can't be so arrogant as to think that everything I believe is, is necessarily true. So you need to have an ideologically diverse media environment where your average citizen can tune in and hear arguments from across the spectrum and make up their own mind. But that is just not what we have around the world. Like that ideal is very far from the, the, the system that we actually have. So when you're talking about free speech, uh, we've seen through over a century of experience now that the commercialized media model does not do a good job of providing for free speech. Because if you have a political opinion or ideology or perspective that's outside of the, the mainstream, you're just not going to get space on these commercialized mass media platforms to try to argue your case. The, the key thing, and this, is, this gets right to the core of the problem with commercialized media systems, we have to always remember the point of Twitter, Facebook, uh, all the you know, television networks, cable networks, et cetera, the point is not to inform the populace so that they can make uh, the most well-informed political decisions. The point is to make money. And whenever the, the, those two goals conflict, in a commercialized media system, you would expect the goal of making more money to win out. So in order to have a, a space like uh, Twitter or Facebook or any of the social media platforms that are actually living up to the requirements of a democratic society, you would have the algorithm that is the, the, uh, the formula by which certain tweets or certain bits of information are shown to more people versus other tweets and other bits of information that are not shown to as many people. That should be completely public. Uh, ideally, that would be a matter of, of political debate. What does the populace want to see in the algorithm? What should it be promoting? What should it be not promoting? Well, that is completely proprietary. In a privatized, commercialized system, the algorithm is not something that regular people can simply investigate and find out you know, how it's working or have any influence whatsoever on how it is designed. So that's really the, the fundamental problem. All of these social media companies, internet companies, instead of thinking, okay, we have this incredible power, how are we going to use it to best facilitate democratic debate so that our governance structures are, are you know, work for the, for the betterment of the majority? No, it's we need to make more money. How do you make more money? Attract more eyeballs. So then you have all of these psychologists thinking about, okay, how do we design this, 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 this software along with the software developers such that it attracts people's attention, it, it sucks them in. And if there's ever a conflict between what sucks people in, what attracts more eyeballs to sell to advertisers versus what the requirements of democracy are, there's no reason whatsoever to expect that the requirements of democracy will win. It just it, it's against the commercial interest of the, the firm or the owner of these companies. Talk to me a little bit more about these algorithms that you mentioned, because in any public forum, even in our circles, you know, when we go for family gatherings, when we hang out with our friends, there will always be, if it's a large group, there will always be some haters um, who are, you know, just spewing hate speech or very, perhaps they are racist or what whatnot. There will be some people, you'll have a couple of people who are, 
you know, always uh, spewing some conspiracy theory and, and things like that. But in 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 circles, in, in, in person, it feels like these are very, very, very few and far between. These are the mi- minorities of the minorities, right? Whereas everybody else seems to be, even if they have a difference in opinions, they seem to be in some sort of common reality. Now, correct mm. me if I'm wrong, but I get the feeling that on social media, and then, you know, it sort of... Um, uh, plays into people's real uh, real life interactions as well and whatnot, it seems that everything is so polarized. Like it's either there's only two sides and the, both sides hate each other. And unless you're saying something extreme, like if, you, if, you, if the things that, you know, always receive hundreds and hundreds of retweets, they are always in your face. Like, you know, you, the moment you open Twitter or the moment you open Facebook, it's like this. Something crazy has happened. Some Something huge and dramatic and, and where it can be fake, it can be real, something extreme. Um, it always seems like it's just these extremes. Does, does that have to do with how the algorithms are, are designed? Yeah, I would be surprised if it didn't have anything to do with how the algorithms are are designed. I mean, I I wouldn't go you know so far as to say it's entirely the 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 fault of the people designing the algorithms because the people designing the algorithms, you know, their their goal is to increase interaction, to increase you know the amount of eyeballs and the time that eyeballs spend on this app. So if there's something about human nature whereby we 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 are more attracted to controversy or you know we're we're attracted to you know talk about uh, sex and violence, uh, that can be something that you know the 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 uh, people designing the algorithms see in the data and they're like oh well you know this works this gets people to pay more attention so we're going to promote uh, these kinds of messages more because we can see that this is the kind of thing that gets people to spend more time on this app, whereby they can then, you know, run into more ads and then we can get more advertising revenue. But it's kind of like, just think of like, if you're with a, a bunch of friends or, or in your community and you've got some guy that's going around and putting duct tape over some people's mouths so that they can still kind of talk, but they're, it's very hard to hear them. And the same guy is then uh, going to other people and giving them a, a megaphone so that everyone can can hear them more loudly. That's essentially what an algorithm does. It takes some voices, some messages, and amplifies them, and then takes other voices, other messages, and you know reduces their their reach. And so that sort of power is not something I think uh, anyone who who is really serious about uh, democracy as an ideal would want to just leave in the hands of a private profit focused individual or corporation, but that's precisely the system that we inhabit today. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. After the break, we discuss the enormous power billionaire social media platform owners have. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we're discussing the impact social media platforms owned by billionaires have on free speech. So, Peter, many people 
tend to look at founders of social media, uh, social media platforms as just, you know, some cool dudes who gave us cool apps. Mm-hmm. But what's the reality here? Because we, we talk about, you know, billionaires, some um, transfer of ownership and all these things, right? Most people who use social media, they're not thinking about that. They're like, I love Instagram. God bless the founder of Instagram. You know, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. Talk to me about the enormous power and influence these tech giants have now. I'm talking about the Zuckerbergs and the, you know, Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musk and all these billionaires who are owning all these uh, massive social media uh, platforms. Um, What -hmm. sort of real power? Do they have real power when it comes to our global political landscape? Yeah, I mean, I would say look at the, the best case scenario. In the best case scenario, all that these people are doing is trying to maximize their revenue. So they're creating their, they're designing their algorithms to maximize screen time, maximize the number of eyeballs on the platform. And they have no preference whatsoever for the kinds of messages that are are shared and which messages are given uh, precedence over others. Let's just, you know, that's the best case scenario where you know, whatever makes them more money is what they will promote and they that that's it. The worst case scenario is in that kind of a position of power over Google, over Facebook, over Twitter, Instagram, all the rest, you can, if you so choose, uh, pick the kinds of messages that you want to be promoted regardless of the, the commercial logic. Uh, and that, you know, no one would know because again, your algorithm is proprietary information. It's not publicly available. Nobody would really know other than by attempting to look at the effects of that algorithm and try to reverse engineer it, so to speak. Uh, but that's the the worst case scenario. And we have no way of knowing whether it's the quote unquote best case scenario, which is still kind of dystopian from a, 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 a the perspective of democratic theory. Um, or if it's the worst case scenario, which is even more dystopian from a perspective of democratic theory, because then the only difference between that and a kind of Orwell 1984 media environment is the fact that in 1984, the people controlling the, the media were, you know, they, they had a, a national flag on their uh, uniform <laughs> versus today it's a corporate logo on the uniform. But it, the, the same problem persists concentrated power in the hands of people who are able to exert massive influence over what people are presented with in terms of their political information, their political education. Now, Peter, can social media be used to influence election results in countries across the globe? Wow, that's, that's I think, a, a really important question. And I think I'm poorly positioned to answer it, uh, coming as I am from the, the US, because we had this kind of national period of uh, just kind of insanity, uh, not half the country, but <laughs> a lot of people who are, who are Democrats and watch uh, MSNBC and CNN, they really did believe that the Russian government uh, just through this brilliant propaganda campaign on the internet convinced millions of people to vote for Trump. And this was the, the worst instance of election manipulation ever in, in all of history. Um, I, I think that that's fanciful, like the, the amount that uh, the Russian government actually 
uh, invested in manipulating that election was laughable. Like it, it probably had zero impact, or if you could measure it, it would be 0.000 something. Just a joke compared to the the, the real domestic political propaganda uh, that really swung you know many people to vote one way or another. But uh, in the the investigations of some of these firms that came out of that hysteria over really non-existent or barely existent Russian manipulation of that election uh, came for the first time in my knowledge, uh, the realization that uh, Cambridge Analytica, for instance, is just one company out of dozens doing precisely the same thing around the world in, in, in countries where people in the U.S. are never informed about at all what they're doing. When you say doing so the same have, thing, what do you mean? The same thing as in uh, manipulating elections. Right. But unlike the fanciful, hysterical uh, idea about what Russia was doing in the U.S., that, that kind of manipulation apparently does go on. And if you have the money, you can hire any number of firms just like Cambridge Analytica to engage in very effective propaganda campaigns in your country in order to swing elections or at least attempt to swing elections in the direction that you want. So it, it's I, I would say it's more worrisome for people outside of wealthy and powerful countries, because at least uh, in the U.S., there's this is on the agenda somewhat. And as hysterical and disconnected from reality, the whole Russiagate conspiracy theory was, uh, there are at least people who are who are focused on this possibility. Um, in much of the rest of the world, you know, this is, I think, an even greater danger because if you have the money, you can hire one of these Cambridge Analytica type firms to wage a, a, a much more serious propaganda campaign than the Russian government ever did in the U.S. Right. Now, tying back to Elon Musk and his idea of free speech, Elon Musk calls himself a free speech absolutist, this idea that anyone can say anything they want without um, regulations whatsoever. Of course, we don't know for sure what's going through Elon Musk's mind, but what is your analysis of his philosophy of free speech? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. For the majority of the world's population who are non-wealthy, uh, in my experience, a lot of people who, who think of, of wealth, they just think of it would be like their life, but they could buy anything they wanted. So they think of, you know, nicer cars, bigger house, more vacations, that sort of thing. And yeah, sure, that, that's part of it, but that's nowhere near the, the, the really the key aspect of wealth. Wealth means you get to be a central planner. Uh, you get to determine where factories are going to be built. You get to determine where workers have to move from one place to another in order to, to, to get a job. Like it's, it's a much more structural form of power that non-rich people, I don't think really understand very well if they think that wealth is simply a matter of having nicer stuff. Um, and then that bleeds into the, the, the discussion uh, that you're bringing up here with that, that question. What, is it, what does it mean to have totally free speech? Like you could look at the US media system and say, hey, look, it's a free marketplace of ideas in the sense that anyone with money can buy a media company and do whatever they like with it. But as soon as you think about that for a second, you realize, ah, well, that's like the AJ Leiblane quip. Like, you know, the, the constitution guarantees uh, freedom of the press to all who own one. 
right? It's not real freedom of speech. So then you could think, okay, let's imagine that that um, Musk is just going to to do a Twitter where we're going to uh, have zero restrictions of any sort. Uh, it, that this is my kind of libertarian free speech uh, paradise. Well, okay, imagine you have wealth. Uh, if you want to get a certain message out, and Twitter is this this completely unregulated platform, with wealth you can directly just hire people to spread your message. Uh, have a, a 50 cent army of people who will just repeat the ideas that you like. So that you can still game the system so long as you have the power of wealth that can you know take smart people and 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 through money pay them to do what you want so i think when you get to the question of what would be ideal for a true uh, uh free speech media environment uh I, I think we have to move away entirely from the commercialized system because we we've seen just look at the united states over the past century that system is not ideal it does not uh, really reflect the the, the uh, free speech ideals of the United States or any other part of the world. I think what you need to have is a, a, a public system that's democratic in the sense that the people uh, have some influence over how it is governed. And the governing philosophy of that system is to provide a forum for debate, for ideas that you believe in and you think are true, but also ideas that you think are horrible, stupid, and you don't think they're true. But to have a forum for that kind of public debate, that I think is the the, the real ideal of, of free speech. Um, I I don't think you can, you can achieve that by just having a level playing field in a sport, so to speak, where you've got heavyweight boxers fighting against flyweight boxers then a level playing field is not, in fact, a level playing field at all. Probably if we had a democratic uh, media system or a democracy-appropriate media system, we'd go even a step further and think about what we need to do to kind of overcome the, the natural psychological biases we all have. So, you know, we, we always, everyone knows that sex sells, for instance. Uh, violence is also very attractive to people. It, it, it you know, it, it connects with us on a very deep level. We're either afraid of it or it's exciting or what have you. So we, I think the, the, the next step in a truly democracy appropriate media system would be to think uh, what kinds of messages do we need to uh, actually give a handicap to and what kind of messages do we need to give a uh, some sort of a, a boost to. Um, but we're so far away from from that kind of ideal because we're still in these commercialized media systems where the only real overriding goal is to make more money, to attract more eyeballs. And so these kinds of discussions are still over the horizon. Right. So now the question is, what can we do about this? Um, you know, what can we do about the social media platforms and the way they are used by um, people who are running them right now, the way they are used and controlled by inf uh, influential, pe uh, influential people, people with enormous wealth. Um, is government regulations the way, at least in the, in the immediate future? Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I would, I would rather uh, like to see international cooperation uh, because these platforms are not national. They're, they're truly international and it doesn't make any sense for the people of, you know, 200 some odd countries 
just bowing down and and following whatever regulations the United States Congress creates oh, or yeah. the European Union creates. So I think you know I, ideally this would be in the realm of international governance, um, but you know we're we're pretty far from from having a, a, a proper democratic ideals instantiated in the international sphere. But if we're just talking about ideals, that's what I think would be ideal is. Uh, democracy applied on a global level to these new institutions, these new uh, media companies that are, by their very nature, international. But would you agree that these platforms need to be regulated, especially because they are owned by very few ultra-wealthy people? Well, yeah, I mean, I would just take a step back further and just say they already are regulated. There, it's not like we exist in this unregulated world. Mm -hmm. we, we tend to think that regulation only comes from governments. No. If you own Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, your policies are de facto regulation. You're regulating those platforms however the hell you want to regulate them as an owner. And right now we can see that the primary motivation is money-making, maximizing profits, but there may also be the individual ide ideological motivations of the owners of these companies. So to, to, to posit that we either have the option of keeping these platforms unregulated, quote unquote, versus introducing regulation is already uh, inaccurate. They already all are regulated. The question is, how do we want them regulated? And I think a lot of people would think, oh, God, government regulation, like, you know, governments are are, are full of problems. And yes, absolutely, they are. But uh, private corporations, you have zero influence over. Zero. Your influence over governments in most of the world might be nominal. It might be extremely small. But at least to some extent, the population has methods by which it can influence government policies. So absolutely, I think a different sort of regulation is in order because they are already regulated and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Right. So what you're saying is, you know, these sites need to be regulated in an ideal situation by the public, what the masses want and, you know, true elected officials who who make craft those policies and whatnot, as opposed to leaving, you know, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg to craft their own regulations, which will ultimately primarily serve their interests first and foremost. But what can we do in in countries where there is absolutely no trust in governments whatsoever, and any attempt by governments to regulate um, big tech, to regulate these social media platforms? Um, you know, will be seen as an authoritarian move against the masses. Let's take China, for example. If anybody here says that, you know, China has their own, you know, essentially there's no Facebook and Twitter and, and all of these things, but they have their own social media platforms, whether it's Weibo and, and whatnot, and, and it's thriving in, in that sense, right? You ask a lot of people here if that is the way to go, and, and they will think you're absolutely out of your mind. They'll be like, why on earth would we want our government to regulate, you know, as opposed to letting these tech giants, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg and all, just run wild and free? Mm. You know, as in these kind of discussions are very common in countries, even like in Malaysia, where right now the trust towards 
politicians and the government, regardless of which side of the aisle they are on, is so low that the word government is seen as the enemy or the bad guys trying to prevent societal progress. How do you, yeah. what, what would you tell um, people who, who bring up this, this argument? Well, I mean, to be honest, my first reaction would be, okay, well, that's that's the first thing you've got to fix. Like, the <laughs> first thing you've got to do is is create a government that actually works in the interests of the people. Um, that is no small or easy task, obviously. Um, but that is the is the first problem. Um, the the second issue, since you brought up China, I mean, I, I used to think very differently about this. I used to think that uh, the the Chinese government's move to uh, uh, basically like cut people off from Facebook and Twitter and whatnot uh, was a bad idea. But uh, over time, I came to realize actually, I think what most countries around the world should do is just copy the Chinese government's lead, M- cut people off from these global internet, uh, yeah, these global technology companies, these these social media platforms, and then allow. Uh, people within each country to create their own versions, because that's essentially what China did. You could look at it as a protectionist policy, where they didn't want these global monopolies to come in and and dominate the the local market. And so what they've done is by cutting off Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, now we have Weibo and and all of these other firms that basically stepped in to 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 the void. I think it would probably be better if all countries around the world did something similar and created uh, local companies uh, to, to produce the same kinds of products so that there would be you know, some development of, of uh, technology companies in all these countries. Because right now, there's no way anyone in Malaysia or you know, just start listing off any of the 200 countries <laughs> in the world. There's no way you as an entrepreneur can compete with Facebook. We're, we're talking about network effects. You're not, you're not going to get uh, people to join your your social network when you already have everybody on these other networks. So I think that would be the 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 kind of second step. I mean, first you need to get a government that actually works in the in the broad interests of the the masses of people. But then after that, I think that the next uh, uh, kind of no brainer step would be to copy something like what what China did, uh, get rid of these monopolies in your own country and then develop uh, local domestic uh, internet, social media companies to take over that role. But for me, the the ideal wouldn't even be that. I think it's actually good to have global social media platforms. I think the only problem is is that they're controlled by the people who own them. Uh, So we have zero influence over what they do. And that's the, the overriding problem. So this has, as always, been a very fascinating and insightful discussion. I guess, closing thoughts from you, Peter. What do we do moving forward? Uh, a lot of our discussions sometimes, you know, tend to veer in in like sort of a depressing um, <laughs> side of things because it is, we, we are painting the reality, right? But what can we do as regular people, um, you know, in small countries with absolutely no power, uh, what what should people do? How how should people approach this? What should be the next step? How do we combat this idea that you know we are sort of losing more and more of our free speech because 
all these platforms are just controlled by a few people with enormous wealth and power. Yeah, I mean that it, it is hard to steer the conversation <laughs> in a in a very hopeful direction when you know you start off trying to analyze the situation as accurately as mm-hmm. possible. You know, there <laughs> there's a fundamental discordance between those right. two perspectives. But I mean, I, I think it it really just comes down to uh, people in countries all over the world and the majority of countries in the world that are not powerful. Uh, the the first order of business should really be attaining. Uh, true national sovereignty and creating a government that works in the interest of the majority of the people. Without without that, you know, everything else becomes far more difficult. But you know, as a as a kind of goal to work toward, uh, I think it's entirely imaginable that if you did have governments that were answerable to the the broad majority of people who are actually well informed and they understand what their their interests are and they understand where their interests conflict with you know people with far more wealth and, and power than than they do then you could have things like uh cartels forming between small less powerful countries so that their uh economies can can exert a little bit more power in the global system and kind of rewrite the rules in the interests of the world's majority but until you have uh governments that actually are are focused on the the true economic and political interests of the majority of the people rather than just a small minority that's in bed with you know the the kind of ruling classes the most powerful people in the rest of the world until you have that uh it, it's really hard to see how uh positive steps are are made but if people are focused on on that primarily the the next steps after that are imaginable you can see how uh uh, uh countries with governments that actually are focused on the interests of the majority could unite and through a union actually exert some influence in the global system that currently they have negligible influence over. Right. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. My pleasure. My pleasure, Dashan. Thank you for inviting me. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, lecturer in Global Political Economy and Political Psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.